Welcome to Kessler Foundation's 2017 Multiple Sclerosis Consumer Conference, Improving Cognitive, Emotional, and Physical Health in Multiple Sclerosis. This conference is hosted by Kessler Foundation and is being funded by the National Multiple Sclerosis Society, grant number 1508-05940. This presentation was recorded and produced by Joan Banks-Smith, creative producer for Kessler Foundation on Friday, October 13th, 2017 at the Westminster Hotel 550 West Mount Pleasant Ave, Livingston, New Jersey. Be sure and check out all of the conference presentations. Just click on the description for the conference playlist and slide link. Our third session of the conference, Staying Cognitively Active, The Role of Cognitive Reserve in MS, was presented by Dr. John DeLuca. Dr. DeLuca is internationally known for his work on cognitive processing, cognitive rehabilitation, neuroimaging, and fatigue in neurological populations. He is Senior Vice President for Research and Training at Kessler Foundation. Let's listen in. So um, what I'm going to talk about, though, is uh, a little bit about what can we do to be a little bit more cognitively active and how that might help us, uh, how it might help patients with MS improve their, their cognitive functioning. So I'll talk about this. Um, so how can we, can we keep mentally fit? What is cognitive reserve? So I told you I'd come back to that. And uh, brain reserve. And, and talk a little bit about exercise and cognition. Because hopefully these are things that we can all do. Uh, now, so let's look at this. So Frank Lloyd Wright started designing the Guggenheim Museum when he was 76. And he finished when he was 89. Goethe finished his masterpiece, Faust, <clears throat> at age 81. And Galileo published his last paper at age 74 when life expectancy was 35. So what is it about some people who can do such great, amazing things so, so late in their lives where other people can't? Others become demented. And one of the things is something called cognitive reserve. And I'll come back to that later in this talk. But the idea is, can we do something in our lives that make us less prone to the impact of the disease? You might still have the disease, but you may not have the same impact of that disease. In other words, the cognitive processes may not be expressed. What can we do? So I'll try to talk about that. So if you go to the Alzheimer's website, Alzheimer's, what they say you can do is Keep your brain active every day. Stay curious, involved, read, write, do crossword puzzles, attend lectures, uh, enroll in courses, play games, garden, try memory exercises. And in fact, there is some, some data for some of these things. That's what they say in Alzheimer's, but there's not that much literature in MS. So cognitive training. Now, let's talk about this a little bit. Now, these are guided practice on a set of tasks related to memory, attention, or brain functions. A lot of what Dr. Cherbalati was talking about. These use repeat, repeated exercises on usually a single task, such as memory. And like I said, Dr. Cherbalati showed you a lot of that, that data. Some of it can be computer-assisted. Remember I said Lumosity was, had their, their problems and this and that. It doesn't mean you can't use a computer. But you need to use a computer as rehab, not just anything. So what I want to do 
Um, the idea of brain plasticity, that means the brain is able to reorganize, is able to take information from the environment and reorganize to the point where it can actually be helpful. Um, and it's not just brain games, these are rehab instruments. And you can see the growth of cognitive training studies have been pretty dramatic over the last 10 years or so. So there's a lot more work on this. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the aging literature. And the reason I'm going to do that is because Dr. Cervalati talked, talked about the processing speed trial that we're doing. Well, that processing speed trial is the same thing that was done in aging. So I'm going to show you what they were able to do in aging. We hopefully can do this in MS. Um, but what's the problem, you know, with aging? 65 or plus population is growing. 20% of the population will be 65 or greater by, by 2030. Cognitive decline is the most feared aspect of growing older in a variety of studies. Cognitive impairments heavily affect the aging population. One in four adults 70 years or older are actually showing some problems without dementia. And drug trials have been disappointing. So if the drug trials are disappointing, we always hope that we can take some medication. Is there anything else we can do? When you look at health priorities in older adults, this is a survey of, of women in Canada, and they've asked the, patient, the, 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 the woman and the, the physician, their physician, <clears throat> what's the biggest problems in your lives? Look on the left side here. <clears throat> Red is the, uh, the, uh, the, the women who were asked, memory problems and diabetes. But look at their physicians. Not a big problem for them. <clears throat> what the problem for them is more like stroke, heart disease, breast cancer. But people are saying, I'm really concerned about my cognition, about my memory. And so that's what we need to show what we can do. So the active trial, I'm going to go through this kind of quickly. The study that we've based our processing speed study that we're doing in MS is based on this study in aging. And it's a really, really powerful study. So we're, I just want to show you what they found so we can hopefully repeat this. Small groups of three to five individuals per group, led by a certified trainer, all manualized treatment, just like uh, Dr. Trivolati said, 10 sessions over six weeks, 60 to 75 minutes per session. Sessions are all um, pre-specified. 80% compliance, which is important. If patients don't comply, you can't show that there's an effect. So on the left side was the expected decline, what you find with aging, okay, on the left side of the slide. So here, if you look at whether you're looking at um, memory in red, reasoning in yellow, or speed in green, you expect a decline over time. But on the right side, what was found in the study? Now this is now over two years. Look at this effect on speed of processing. And that's what I'm gonna focus on. There was a huge effect on improving processing speed. Remember I said that's one of the primary problems in MS. So there was an increase, not a decline. In, in this study, and so hopefully we can see that in MS. Now, this is a complicated slide, but I'll make it easy for you. Uh, this is over 10 years, right? Yes, this is over 10 years, and let's just focus on the processing speed. Nice thing about the study that we have 10 year, they have 10 year data. This is early on, this is 10 years later. Look what happened to processing speed. And while it continues to decline, the red line, which is hard to see, is the healthy controls. There's still an effect 10 years after training. There's still an effect. You don't see this in, the, in medication trials. So 
Um, if you ask patients on their, their self-report of their everyday life, you see the same kind of thing. Complicated. Red is the healthy controls. Yellow is the processing speed. After 10 years, they're still reporting significant improvements in learning how to use the techniques that they've learned in their everyday lives. Uh, Dr. Cervalotti mentioned there are a lot of, of uh, impact uh, of these studies. In fact, individuals who were in speed or reasoning actually had re less crashes, reduced crashes in, in driving if they had, in, they've gone through the treatment. They were less depressed and, and they had better health-related quality of life. So this is all in the aging literature. What about dementia? Can they actually show that it staves off dementia? That would be really interesting. Remember, this is not medication. It's not medication. This is a behavioral intervention. Large sample. And of this sample, 10% became, uh, got a uh, diagnosis of dementia. What they found was those individuals who, were in, who improved their processing speed had a 33% less risk of getting a diagnosis of dementia. And if you had a higher, if those, this is dose dependent, if you had a higher dose, your risk was uh, a 48% reduction for a behavioral intervention. So this intervention is what we are using in persons with MS today. So that's what we hope to find. Uh, if we do a 10-year study, it'll be 10 years from now. <laughs> but uh, hopefully we could do the follow-up study as well. So let's, let me talk quickly then about this idea of cognitive reserve, because this is something else that we can do in our lives to help stave off the cognitive decline, not the disease, but the, the, the impact of the disease. So what is cognitive reserve? So there's been quite a bit of work on this in Alzheimer's, so let's just talk about that real quick. Not everyone with Alzheimer's develops dementia. Did you know that? It's not everybody who has Alzheimer's, 25 to 30 percent of persons who've passed away, and if you look at their brains, have and never had any dementia, have Alzheimer's. Because Alzheimer's is the disease of the brain. Dementia is the consequence of the disease. So not everybody gets it. Um, and what we found was, and I just said, if you look at the pathology, you can see that, in fact, while you, some people have had Alzheimer's, they didn't have dementia. So numerous have studied that showed that lower educational attainment, fewer years of education, put persons at a higher risk of showing the dementia in Alzheimer's disease. So that led to this idea of cognitive reserve, that persons with a higher lifetime intellectual enrichment, persons with a lifetime of a lot of intellectually stimulating activity in their lives, oops, hit the wrong button, um, that they were able to withstand the neuropathology of the disease and not show the dementia or the cognitive decline. So if you are in a lifetime of intellectually enriching activities, you actually can decrease the chance of showing dementia. And, and this is just the neuropathology, and I'll skip it, because I'll show it to you later. Um, so um, how do we measure cognitive reserve, then, if there's this idea that the, we can look at the environment? Now, important to note that cognitive reserve is a construct. It's not a test. There's no test for cognitive reserve. So we have to look at different ways of trying to measure it. Some people look at it by years of education, like I just showed you, uh, by premorbid IQ measures, which we can measure, such as measuring people's vocabulary, their word reading, uh, and cognitively stimulating leisure activities. These are all ways that we try to 
measure this cognitive construct. Um, so what about in MS? Some work in, um, in, um, in Alzheimer's. We were the first group to look at this in MS with funding from the MS Society. Uh, so does cognitive reserve, does higher cognitive reserve moderate the relationship between the diagnosis of MS and developing cognitive impairment? That was our first question. And this was our first paper back in 2009. So let's look at the left side of this slide. Let's look at memory on the left side of the slide. On the bottom here, individuals with lower cognitive reserve, higher cognitive reserve on the right. MS subjects are the solid line, the dotted line is healthy controls, okay? Individuals with lower cognitive reserve, which much more likely to show memory impairment compared to healthy controls. Individuals with higher cognitive reserve didn't show memory impairment. If you look at cognitive efficiency, which is processing speed and working memory, um, same thing. Individuals with lower cognitive reserve were, were showing problems but not individuals with higher cognitive reserve. Now that's interesting. Um, now, let's look at the relationship between then cognitive reserve and brain imaging. Okay, now we know that there's a cognitive reserve effect and it's been replicated dozens and dozens of times. This is a very strong effect. We know brain atrophy can, uh, can predict cognition. However, the relationship between MRI scans and cognition is not good. Most of the explanation is not in the MRI. So the MRI is not going to tell you about your cognition. You have to assess your cognition. So what we did is, is does cognitive reserve moderate the relationship between brain atrophy on MRI and cognitive performance? This was the paper we, we studied. Look at the left side of this slide now. Okay, look at the left slide. Here's cognitive efficiency. Remember I defined it earlier as processing speed and working memory accuracy. Here on the left side of the x-axis is low brain atrophy and then higher brain atrophy. So as you get more atrophy, you go across here. Individuals in the red line were high cognitive reserve group. Individuals in this, whatever color that is, line is low cognitive reserve. So you can see, if you look at the left side of the slide, when there's very little atrophy in the brain, the high and low cognitive reserve group didn't differ. But as you show progression of the disease, or as you see more brain atrophy, individuals with higher cognitive reserve were not showing a lot more cognitive change. But individuals with low cognitive reserve had a huge decrease, a huge decrease, two and a half standard deviation. That's, that's huge. However, the same degree of atrophy on MRI. These groups had the same degree of atrophy on MRI, but the high cognitive reserve individuals were not showing cognitive change. The low cognitive reserve patients were showing a huge amount of change. Same thing, these are just showing that we were sort of same thing on another study looking at learning and memory. It's a powerful effect. This is in secondary progressive MS. We find the same thing. Uh, lower cognitive reserve, higher cognitive reserve. Um, in, I'm sorry, this is the lower uh, um, level of atrophy, higher atrophy, higher cognitive reserve, no change, and there was a difference in, in, in the secondary progressive MS. So, we also looked at measuring, looked at uh, lifetime leisure activity. And how, if we look, ask patients their leisure activity over their lives, could that be a measure of their cognitive reserve? So we had a, a scale where we asked individuals, 
Over the last 20 years, how many books did you read? Did you read a lot of books, several times per week, once per year? Magazines, produced art, play musical instruments. We wanted to get a sense of their intellectual enriching activities over 20 years. And so when we did that, we found that there's a significant relationship. Those individuals, their cognitive performance on the, on the y-axis and how much a, a leisure activity, there was a significant relationship. Those who reported doing more had less cognitive impairment. This is a study by another group that looked at, well, since your diagnosis of MS, individuals who maintained intellectually stimulating activity in this line actually um, showed less of problems in processing speed from, this is a lower to higher atrophy on the x-axis, lower to higher atrophy over time. But individuals who maintained a higher level of activity showed less cognitive decline than individuals who did not since their diagnosis. Um, and I'll skip this just for the sake of time. This is a longitudinal study of individuals um, at baseline or five years later. Uh, and this group here is the cognitive, high cognitive reserve group on the left. On the right is individuals with the low cognitive reserve. From baseline to five years later, you can see no change. However, in the, this group here with the low cognitive reserve, they were showing a decline over five years. We showed the same thing. I mean, there's so many studies on this. Um, if you look at the left side here, again, cognitive efficiency, baseline and four and a half year follow-up. Okay, baseline, four and a half year follow-up. High cognitive reserve didn't change. Low cognitive reserve showed a decline. So this is really important. Um, I'm gonna, very quickly, because you're giving me five minutes, brain reserve. Now that's cognitive reserve. The important thing, cognitive reserve is what can you do in our lives? to actually change our brains. Um, now brain reserve is typically a concept of what do we have genetically? What, what do we, did we get from our parents, if you will? Don't, and you can blame your parents if you want to. Um, so we, we look at brain reserve by measuring the, the cranial capacity. So on MRI you can measure how much capacity there is in the cranium and then look at the, the brain size. And um, so the idea of brain reserves, not my idea by the way, the idea is that larger brains have, less, have more tissue to lose before you start showing cognitive decline. So the more neurons you have, the more you can lose before you show cognitive decline. So there is a relationship, again, intracranial volume, that is the, the volume of your cranium, which, which means how much your brain size is. This is how we, people measure it. And, and cognitive status. There is a relationship. And we find here that individuals with high brain reserve between lower atrophy and higher atrophy are not changing their cognitive status, but individuals with low brain reserve are. So genetically, there's something going on. So the next question we asked was, okay, can cognitive reserve have an effect over and above brain reserve? That is, can we do something in our environment despite what we have from our parents, if you will. Can we do something? So can we have higher intellectual activity during our lives overcome this? And when we looked at this, here's a, again, the relationship between cognitive reserve, here measured by leisure activity, and status is very strong. 
But here's now the data on cognitive reserve after we factor out brain reserve. If brain reserve was the only answer, there'd be no effect of cognitive reserve. But the good news is individuals, again, with high cognitive reserve still were showing a maintenance of cognitive performance where the individual with low cognitive reserve or not. The point is, is that the environment can have a huge impact on the expression of cognitive impairment. This is really good news. Um, so, for example, can we identify individuals who are at high risk or at risk for cognitive decline? So think about a person with MS, they're diagnosed during the, the prime of their lives. Let's say you're 20 years old, you're in college, you're diagnosed with MS. A lot of times what happens is, well, it's a devastating disease, patients drop out of school, they, they become socially isolated, they don't want to uh, talk to their parents. Well, they didn't talk to their parents anyway. Um, uh, but you see, they, they withdraw. The, what we need to do is to engage, to build the cognitive reserve. That becomes part of therapy. So then can we in fact do it? Can we build this cognitive reserve in people? Uh, and not just when you're 20, but even when you're older. And the idea is to what can we do to make sure that we maintain ourselves and become as, as intellectually active as possible so that we can change our brains so that we show a decreased likelihood of showing uh, a decline later on. Remember the active trial I just showed you with a processing speed intervention. That study in aging actually decreased the chances of, become, of, of, of dementia. So the idea is that you can do something, and this is something we can all do. That's where I now come back to lumosity. Lumosity is not rehab, but it's not going to hurt you. But you can do something like lumosity. You can join reading groups. You can learn a new language. You can do things to try to stave off the cognitive decline, not the MS, but the expression of that disease. And I go back to the Alzheimer's website. What they say you can do, persons with MS can do. I, I love it. I say join a book club. You know, playing cards. You know how cognitively engaging playing cards is? I mean, you could do a number of things. But the point is, do it. Exercise. I'm going to go through this very quickly. Uh, exercise is great for you. We're going to hear all about it this afternoon. But what about the evidence of exercise and cognition? The evidence on exercise and cognition is mixed. It's very early in the studies, so the idea of how exercise can improve cognition is mixed. I can't sit there and say, if you exercise, you're improving your cognition. Uh, and I'm going to go through this very quickly um, because of time and just show you the bottom line. So here is a graph on exercise and cognition. If you look at the bottom here, this is called class of evidence, class 1, 2, 3, and 4. Class 1, 2, 3, and 4. Class 1 evidence is like Dr. Chervalati was saying, a randomized controlled trial where you can show cause and effect. Class 4 is not very good, a case report, things that you really can't draw cause and effect. And when you look at here, a negative study is in the dark lines, a positive study is in the, the slashed lines. And when you look at the better studies that have been run, the class 1 and class 2 studies, they're negative. That is, exercise was not showing an effect on improving cognition. However, these other studies, which, with the th class three and four, were. 
So that is the idea that there's something maybe going on. We just haven't identified what that is yet. Same thing, we look at physical activity, which, by the way, is not the same thing as exercise. You could do a lot of physical activity, but not necessarily exercise. Here you can see no class one studies. There's only one class two study, which was positive. Um, but again, very mixed. If you look at um, physical fitness, again, no class one, two studies. But the studies that have been run, which are not that good, are showing a possibility. So what this is telling us is that there is some data out there that we have to get a better idea of what should be the exercise, at what duration, at what frequency, for whom, at what, what patients early, later. We, there's a lot of more information we need to know. And I'm going to go through this very quickly, like I said. We did a study of exercise in two subjects, just two. These are very expensive studies to run. It was an exercise over a three-month period of time on a bicycle. We said we wanted one subject to do aerobic exercise and the other subject to do non-aerobic exercise. The idea is aerobic exercise should potentially have a greater effect. We know that from the animal literature, from the aging literature. So in two subjects, so I want to emphasize two subjects. Here we have the aerobic subject and the stretching subject. Remember, Dr. Trivolati mentioned the hippocampus, very important in memory. The aerobic exercise actually showed an increase in the size of the hippocampus by 16.5% compared to the stretching group. Um, in memory, this one individual showed a 54% improvement in memory, but not in the stretching subject. So just two subjects. These are the kinds of preliminary data we need to get to run greater trials. This simply just shows you, and I'll just mention it, that individual in the aerobic exercise actually showed more connections between the hippocampus and other areas of the brain by just doing exercise, whereas the, healthy, the, the non-aerobic patient didn't show that. Hippocampus was more connected to other areas of the brain. And just one more study I'll just show you very quickly that we did. And we looked at um, eight subjects, five in the intervention group, three in a, in a weightless control, 12 weeks of exercise. And we looked at the area, we looked at the thalamus, and this was a, an MRI study. We wanted to see if there was more connections between this important structure in the brain and other areas of the brain. And that's what we found. We found that there was more connections between the, this, this thalamus and other areas of the brain in the exercise group not, than in the control group. And that the performance on a, on, a work, on a processing speed task was associated with that improvement. So there was uh, pro the exercise improved processing speed, which improved connections in the brain. And this is just showing you that. So, while there's no conclusive evidence on exercise and cognition, the preliminary evidence that we have is positive. But we, at this point, I cannot say what you should do, how you should do it, and when, other than if you speak with your physician and you can do some exercise, um, it's not going to hurt you in any way. So overall, cognitive reserve and brain reserve can protect persons with MS from the expression of the disease. That's the big message, that intellectual activity, engagement in society, engagement in activity can actually prevent the expression of cognitive impairment. That's what people should be doing. That alone is not therapy, but it's something that everybody can do with their families. Um, 
the uh, environmental enrichment should be a major focus of rehabilitation to build a cognitive reserve. More and more, we're learning more and more, more about pediatric MS. Kids who are 15, 16 getting diagnosed with MS. We should make sure they are stimulated in their lives. And exercise may hold promise, but the data is preliminary. So thank you very much. Be sure and stop by our Facebook page to listen to this podcast series and join in the conversation at our Twitter channel at KesslerFDN. To learn more about our research, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.